You are listening to the sermon audio of New Hope Community Church in Canaan, New Hampshire. For more information, visit our website at newhopecommunity.net. Give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. His love endures forever. Let Israel say, His love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say, His love endures forever. But those who fear the Lord say, His love endures forever. In my anguish, I cried to the Lord, and he answered by setting me free. The Lord is with me. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? The Lord is with me. He is my helper. I will look in triumph on my enemies. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. All the nations surrounded me, but in the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me on every side, but in the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They swarmed me like bees, but they died out as quickly as burning thorns. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. I was pushed back and about to fall, but the Lord helped me. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. Shouts of joy and victory resound in the tents of the righteous. The Lord's right hand has done mighty things. The Lord's right hand is lifted high. The Lord's right hand has done mighty things. I will not die, but live. I will proclaim what the Lord has done. The Lord has chastened me severely, but he has not given me over to death. Open for me the gates of righteousness. I will enter and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord through which the righteous may enter. I will give you thanks for you answered me. You have become my salvation. The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. O Lord, save us. O Lord, grant us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. From the house of the Lord we bless you. The Lord is God, and he has made his light shine upon us. With bows in hand, join in the festal procession up to the horns of the altar. You are my God, and I will give you thanks. You are my God, and I will exalt you. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures forever. Join me in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. Your word is a light at our feet. May it lead us and guide us this morning. Help us to see Christ, our King, rejected yet reigning through the psalm this morning. And Lord, through the mouth of your servant, Lord, though a weak vessel, jar of clay that I am, use me through your spirit to proclaim the truths of scripture that we may find comfort and strength in the midst of difficult times. We just pray these things in your son's name. Amen. I had the joy this week of spending 
the last six days in a tent with a bunch of middle school boys who proudly proclaimed they have never showered before. Why would I subject myself to that? Well, we did a youth retreat with a few other churches throughout New England, and the center of the retreat's theme was the gospel according to Moses, Christ in the Old Testament. And what a joy it was to proclaim the gospel to students 7th through 12th grade, showing how, as we read the Old Testament, we can see Christ so clearly proclaimed to us. And one of the verses that was a theme for the week was Luke 24, where Christ proclaims the Old Testament to his disciples on the road to Emmaus. And as they see the connections between Christ and the teachings of Moses and the Psalms, it says that their hearts burned within them. And that's my prayer for us this morning, that as we study Psalm 118, that God might be pleased to have our hearts stir and burn within us. I'm sure if I asked all of you this morning to share with me your favorite psalms, you'd have probably no difficulty coming up with them. There's plenty of ones that are popular. Psalm 23, Psalm 100, Psalm 51, so many choices. But for me, Psalm 118 is probably my all-time favorite. The opening flourish has been a regular refrain around the Hebert household dinner table. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. And I'm in good company. It's also Martin Luther's favorite psalm. He said of Psalm 118, This is my own beloved psalm. Although all the psalms and all the Bible are dear to me as my only comfort and source in life, I fell in love with this psalm, especially. Therefore, I call it my own. When emperors and kings, the wise and the learned, couldn't help me, this psalm proved a friend and helped me out of a great many troubles. Would to God that all the world would claim this psalm as its own, as I do. Well, the question is, what is it about this psalm that caused Luther to fall in love with it so deeply? When we reflect a bit on Luther's life, I think we can start to see why he resonated so deeply with it. You see, Luther faced persecution from the religious and political forces of his own day for his teachings and actions that challenged the Pope and the doctrine of the Catholic Church. He was excommunicated declared an outlaw and a heretic. And this meant that anyone could freely kill him without legal recourse. And his writings were completely forbidden in the Catholic Church. Luther had to go into hiding in order to finish translating the New Testament into German just so that people could read the Bible without priests as intermediaries. And like Luther... Our psalmist faced intense opposition that led him to feel distressed. The NIV uses the word anguish. Feel surrounded and pushed to the very brink. Perhaps you may resonate with some of those feelings this morning. The feeling of being distressed or in anguish in verse 5 there. That Hebrew word means to be pressured 
ensnared, squeezed. Maybe the current economic state has you feeling squeezed financially. Or you feel pressed for time as if there's just not enough time to do the things that need to be done. Or like in verses 10 through 12, you feel surrounded, encompassed on every side. You feel as though you are isolated, be it at work, or from your own family. You have those who actively root against you, are opposed to you and your faith. You simply feel as though there is no escape. I can't help but think of the situation over at Mid-Vermont, being opposed by the very state you wish to compete in. Or you feel pushed to the limit, like in verse 13. Maybe there's something in your life, some sort of difficulty, a trying family member, a difficult marriage, depression, anxiety, work, something that just pushed you to the very brink. You feel as though one more and you're just going to fall. Well, if you feel like this, as I'm sure many of us do, and you read those opening words, his steadfast love endures forever, you may come to feel, but does it really? And my hope this morning is to help us claim this psalm as our own, just as Luther did. That in it, we would find comfort in a constant friend, and that we would see just how God's steadfast love truly endures forever, even in the midst of struggle and opposition. I've broken the psalm into three main sections. We kind of have the beginning and end with the choruses of his steadfast love endures forever. But there's three main sections. In verses 5 through 13, we have the king and his struggle. In verses 14 through 18, we have the king and his song. And you'll notice as a good Baptist, there's good alliteration. And in 19 through 21, we have the king and his salvation. You will notice I have preemptively designated the psalmist here as the king. We aren't given any explicit details like a superscript, you know, written by a psalm of David or anything like that. However, I do believe that as we read through this psalm, it will become clear why I think this is the case and why it's important. So let's start here at verse five with the king and his struggle. Many of the verses I'm going to be reading through here in my own study are from the ESV, but there's very few word differences in the NIV. Out of my distress, I called on the Lord and the Lord answered me and set me free. Like I mentioned earlier, the distress here is the feeling of being restricted under pressure squeezed. The psalmist is in overwhelming circumstances. He feels pressed and crushed by his own situations. However, he also says that in that moment, he cried out to God. And he says that God set him free. Literally, it means put him in an open field. So even in the midst of being restricted, the Lord delivers him and sets him in an open space, free to run. He continues, the Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. The psalmist is a man with enemies. There are men who oppose him in the things that he does. 
He knows, however, that there is nothing that they can do to harm him. He has had struggles with enemies, those who hate him, but he also knows that the Lord, the God of all the universe, is his helper. And because of that, he knows that he will triumph over all his enemies. And he goes on in verse 8 and 9 to say, It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord, to trust in princes. The psalmist knows in the midst of all this opposition that he cannot rely on others to save him. Not even the powerful princes of his day. And it wouldn't be surprising to us if he had been betrayed before in the past. Perhaps you know that feeling yourself, counting on others only for them to let you down. But he knows that the Lord will not betray him. He can take refuge in him and find rest in the midst of turmoil, a helper in the midst of difficulty. He continues in verse 10, going from this feeling of distress and anguish to being surrounded. He says, all nations surrounded me. So not only does he have enemies, but the psalmist says literally the whole world is against him. Every nation. While you may resonate with that feeling of being surrounded, like I described earlier, few people have actually experienced hostility like this. All nations surrounded me. They surrounded me. Surrounded me on every side. Listen to that repetition. The opposition was completely overwhelming. A few political figures may come to mind when we think of somebody like this. Presidents, emperors, generals, kings. You see, this is one of the reasons I believe this psalmist is a royal figure. Who else would be in a place to face off against the entire world? And notice how he describes them. They surrounded me like bees. They went out like a fire among thorns. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. But just imagine that. That's a, that's a vivid image, isn't it? Being completely surrounded by bees overwhelming you, stinging you on all sides. This is often a metaphor used in the Old Testament for the armies which oppose Israel. But notice, they are also like burning thorns. They burn hot and fast and then poof, nothing. This is like the other night I started a fire for Christina back when the weather was, you know, uh, not Noahic in nature. And my ratio of kindling to logs was a little off. And so the, the fire burned very hot and very fast. And so by the time Christina had come out, only a few minutes later, after making herself some, uh, something for dessert, uh, the fire was already completely white ash. So she didn't get to enjoy any of it. But this is the picture that the psalmist paints of these massive armies that oppose him. Hot with rage one moment, ashes the next unsurprising when we remember that the Lord is his helper. And he says, nonetheless, I was pushed hard so that I was falling, but the Lord helped me. Even though he was pushed in the, the Hebrew is this idea of being pushed and pushed and pushed. It's repeating itself. Nevertheless, the Lord helped him and preserved him. The Lord gave him victory over all the nations 
and their armies. Even though he was at the very brink, the Lord used him to cut off his enemies. And this brings us to the next section. The king's response to this salvation, this deliverance. We see the king in his song. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. This victory that the Lord has given the king inspires song. And the song is nearly identical to portions of the song of Moses in Exodus 15. I went back and forth on what the uh, the scripture meditation should be in light of this passage. And it was either the passage in Mark or Exodus 15. And I decided Mark would be more easy to, to reference. And so I'm going to read Exodus 15 a little later here. This is a song that Moses sung after the Lord had delivered him and Israel from Egypt after the Red Sea crossing. And notice that just like with the song of Moses, the king is not singing alone. It says songs erupt in the camps of his army as well. This is where I got the, song, the sermon title from. Glad songs of salvation are in the tents of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord exalts. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The tents of the righteous here, the army encampments, burst forth with shouts of victory and praise. And this is what God's people do, isn't it? We sing. God saves us, and we sing. I love joining you guys for worship this morning, hearing Ashley sing. Only a holy God. Just reminding ourselves of these things. And that's what the king is doing here. Singing about the ways in which God has saved him. And he sings, he continues, I shall not die, but I shall live and recount the deeds of the Lord. This victory was such a dramatic turn of events for the king. It's almost as if he was rescued from death itself. On the brink of death, but the Lord delivered him, brought the king back to life so that the king could do what the king is supposed to do in the Old Testament. Recount the works of God. However, that doesn't mean it was a simple struggle. He says that the Lord has disciplined me severely, but he's not given me over to death. The fight was fierce, but the Lord did not surrender the king to die. Like I said, this song is reminiscent of the song of Moses. Just listen to a few verses from Exodus 15. You'll hear the connections. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. Do you see the parallels? It's as though the king in Psalm 118 is intentionally using language of the Exodus. As though he's comparing his own deliverance to the deliverance of Israel in Egypt through the Exodus. Could it be that this king in Psalm 118 is trying to paint a picture of his own life as a new Exodus? As if in some way, 
The king is a picture of the messianic king that would come to deliver God's people. And we'll hold on to that. We'll get back to it. But before I get ahead of myself, let's continue on and look at 19 through 27, where we'll see this more clearly, where we look at the king and his salvation. In verses 5 through 13, we saw the king surrounded by his enemies. And now here, we see the king surrounded by his people. Briefly, let's recap. 5 through 13, we see the king win an astonishing and surprising victory over his enemies. And then in 14 through 18, we see the king and his people respond to that victory through song. And now in 19 through 17, or 27, the king is leading all of his people in a victory march back into Jerusalem to celebrate this momentous occasion. It's a grand victory, like VE or VJ Day, just dancing and celebrating in the streets. The war is over. The victory is won. The king reigns. But this is even bigger than that. Read verse 19. This says, open to me the gates of righteousness, that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. The gates of righteousness here are referring to the entrances to the temple in Jerusalem. The victorious king wishes to enter so that he can give thanks to the Lord, recount his deeds. But notice that the gate here isn't just gate, it's gates, it's plural. One man doesn't need multiple gates to go through. The king is not alone. Everyone enters the courts with him. All those who cheered for his victory in the encampments, in the tents of the righteous. And so the king gives thanks. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and become my salvation. But in verse 22, notice that the speakers changes. It's no longer the king speaking, but the people who are with him. It goes from the, the singular to the plural in first person. They use temple building language to describe the king and his victory over the nations. They say that the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone or the capstone. The rejected stone has become the single most important feature in the temple's architecture. The foundation which holds it all together. And this was an astonishing feat, the psalmist writes. This is the Lord's doing. Only God could do this. And it is marvelous in our eyes. Completely unexpected. No one could have predicted that this rejected stone, the king, could win over all the nations. And so the people cry out, this is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. It's remarkable. However, it is not without precedent in the Old Testament. This is the way that the Lord has always worked in redemptive history. He uses the rejected to bring about his own glorious purposes. Consider a few examples with me. Like Joseph, rejected by his own brothers to then become the centerpiece for the back half of Genesis, and one of the highest ranking people in all of Egypt. Or Moses, rejected by his own people and his own family, 
only to lead them through the Exodus where they continue to reject him and then become the mediator of God's covenant with Israel and lead them into the promised land. Or David, who was not expected to become king by his father, Jesse, and was persecuted by his predecessor, Saul, but he would eventually rule over all Israel as king and become a man after God's own heart. This is the pattern that God has set forth from the very beginning of Scripture. And the king of Psalm 118 is in that same vein as Joseph and Moses and David. And the people cry out and pray to the Lord, save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. The word here is Hosanna, simply means save us. They're crying out to the Lord, continue to save us. And they say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. They're showering blessings on the man who has delivered them by the very hand of God, the king who has gone before them. And they, clue, they conclude with a priestly procession. The Lord is God and he has made his light to shine upon us. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. They ask for God's blessings. Make your face shine upon us. And they bring a sacrifice of thanks to God. And we'll look at that sacrifice here in a moment. But now we're left with a question. Who is this king that Psalm 118 speaks of? Who is this king that would come to deliver God's people? Who would win a victory over all the nations? Who is this stone that was rejected? but is now the cornerstone to God's dwelling place. Well, centuries later, the New Testament authors would read this psalm as referring to Christ. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all present the crowds welcoming Jesus into Jerusalem with the words of verse 26, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus' disciples understood Jesus, you're the king from Psalm 118. You're the one who's come to win the great victory over our enemies. They see the salvation that's before them, and they say, this is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice. But not only that, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and Peter all present Jesus as the stone that the builders rejected. And he would be rejected. Rejected by the leaders of Israel, but rejected by his own people. Rejected by us. Jesus had indeed come to save his people, as we're told all throughout the Gospels. But we opposed him. We are all by nature the enemies of the king. Now we often like to self-insert ourselves within the Psalms. We read Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And we see ourselves as the sheep led by the shepherd. But if we were to try to put ourselves in this psalm, 
we would more likely be one of the bees. The enemies that surround Jesus and reject him. If we had been there on Good Friday when Christ was crucified, we all would have scoffed and mocked him. Our wickedness is ubiquitous. It knows no bounds. It is utterly limitless. But that is why Jesus is not only the king that saves us, but the sacrifice that cleanses us. Amazing, isn't it? The disciples are all crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But little did they know that just a few days later, the festal sacrifice would be bound up with cords and offered on the altar before God. That first there about the horns of the altar and the sacrifice, that's straight out of the Day of Atonement in Leviticus 16, which, if you know your Bibles, is smack dab in the center of the books of Moses. It's the climax of God's word there. The Day of Atonement, the day when God would sprinkle clean his people by the blood of the Lamb so that they can come before him. Little did the disciples know that the king that would save them was the sacrifice that would cleanse them. Christ, our king and great high priest, was himself that sacrifice. He wins through weakness and triumphs through tragedy. Just as Paul says in Colossians regarding the cross, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Our greatest enemies, sin and Satan and the grave, Christ has conquered for us. Jesus has fought the battle at the cross and won. Not by military might or by a show of tremendous force, but by death on the cross. Just as Luther wrote in his famous hymn, A Mighty Fortress, did we in our own strength confide our striving would be losing. We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. You ask who that may be, and if we put that in the context of this psalm, you ask who this king is, Christ Jesus, it is he. Lord Sabaoth, his name from age to age the same, and he must win the battle. And the battle is over. Christ won totally and completely through his death and resurrection. And like the people in the song, we celebrate the king's victory and we continue to celebrate today. Every time we gather together to worship on a Sunday, Every time we partake of the Lord's Supper, every time we have a baptism, we proclaim Christ's victory over sin and death until he comes again. But in order to taste of this victory, we must first turn to him in faith. Notice the psalm says, only the righteous can enter the gates and join in this celebration. And as Habakkuk says, and as Paul reminds us, the righteous can only live by faith. So in a way, this psalm contains all of humanity in it. 
We are either among the tents of the righteous, those who are trusting in the deliverance of the king, or we are the bees, the thorns being burned up. Where do we see ourselves in this psalm? Well, if you've trusted in Christ and tasted of his victory, as I'm sure all of us have, then we are exhorted to give thanks even in the midst of fierce opposition. If we trust in Christ, then we are in Christ. Our lives are hid with Christ on high, as the famous hymn goes. Yes, we may at times share in Christ's sufferings, but those are feelings of being distressed, surrounded, pushed. Christ endured them far more than we can even imagine. But even in the midst of that, he says, I shall not die, but live. And just as Christ can cry out and say, I shall not die, but live, so can we. Just as Christ in the psalm could say, the Lord is my helper. We too can say that the Lord is my helper. And that's exactly what the writer of Hebrews does. He quotes this psalm and applies it directly to us, saying, we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? So Luther prayed, would to God that all the world would claim this psalm as its own as I do. And I pray the same for us this morning. That we can claim this psalm as our own. That we can claim this king as our own. The king's suffering, his song, his salvation, they are all ours in Christ. We too can find great comfort in this psalm, just as Luther did, just as Christ did. So let us claim this psalm's glorious truths for ourselves this morning. And so I return to my original question. How do we know that the Lord's steadfast love endures forever. Even in the midst of distress and anguish, opposition being pushed to the very brink, we look to Christ, our rejected and reigning King, the author and projector of our faith. And this is how we know God's love endures forever. And so we cry out in closing, you are my God and I will give thanks to you. And you are my God, I will extol you. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. For his steadfast love endures forever. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you bled and died for our sins and rose again, triumphing over yours and our enemies. Grant us this morning to be partakers of your victory, that we who are delivered from the hand of them that hate us may serve you without fear in time and in eternity forever. Help us this Lord this day, Lord, to look to you, to remind ourselves 
that this is the day that the Lord has made, that we would rejoice and be glad in it, to remind ourselves that what is man to do? We will not die, but shall surely live, just as we were united to you in your death on the cross, Lord, we were united to you in your resurrection, and will reign with you in all eternity, for time and forevermore. Amen.